listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and this is the Save the Marriage podcast. This is the podcast designed to help you save your marriage and improve it no matter where you're starting from. Maybe you're trying to save your marriage before it gets into trouble. A lot of the mindset stuff we'll talk about, including today's podcast, will help you with that. Maybe you're finding yourself in the middle of a crisis, and maybe you're even facing a threat of divorce and struggling through even a separation or an affair. Well, we talk about those issues too, or maybe you're somewhere in between, knowing that your marriage is not where you want it to be, and it's not where your spouse wants it to be, and you want to make a change. We're there to talk about that too. Last episode, I talked about some things you can do all on your own. And then I started thinking about how people are operating as themselves, right? And one of the things that I'm often reminded of is when people have come to my office and I'm listening to both stories, and it's as if they both are racing to decide who is the bigger victim of the relationship. And I've talked about this before, about how you know we start the story at different places in order to find the problems, in order to find the original problem, not the one that our spouse is blaming on us, but the original problem. And so we always track back, and it's always a matter of where we start the story, where we start looking at the story. And that's part of the issue uh, that I want to talk about today, because there is this role that we often play, that people often play in life, of being the victim. So today we want to talk about how being the victim can be a problem, but more than that, You know, I titled it How to Be the Bigger Victim. So if you use my material the opposite way I would like you to, you're going to be able to race your spouse to be the biggest victim possible. Let me just step back for a moment and say we're talking about the role of being a victim. I want to say very clearly that it is possible for you to be a victim, a victim of some event a victim of something that happens. And I, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about that. So if, if you're walking down the street and somebody attacks you, you're a victim of that attack. If you've done nothing and a spouse is violent towards you, you're a victim of that event that's not anything you've created. If you are in the middle of a storm, that can be that a, a place of being a victim, right? If a storm hits your house or in many situations, if you become sick with something, you can say you're a victim of that circumstance. And, and what I want to draw is the distinction between a circumstance and how we often live our lives within a role. You and I play lots of roles in life. It's kind of like we went and tried out for a play and, and we were chosen for this role, except for we choose it every day. What role are we going to play? And and there are some roles that are based in how we're going to live our life. For instance, I have a role as a spouse. I have a role as a parent. I have a role as a child. I have a role as you know an employer and a role as somebody who does lots of stuff in the public. That those are roles I play, and those are the, the roles around us of how we navigate life. And then there are the roles that are more about our psychology. Like if I have a role of being the person who's got to rescue everybody, that can get me in trouble, even if there are times when that's necessary. 
Or maybe I play another role where I'm the person who has to know everything, and that generally is a problematic role. In research in psychology, there are three roles that we often talk about in this one little triangle called uh, the rescuer triangle, and that is one of the roles, the rescuer, then there is the aggressor or the attacker, and then there's the victim. And that's not really meant to be a physical attack. It's more about how people interact with each other. Now, what happens between two people is often they vie for being the victim, And that is the point of that triangle just talked about, because in order for there to be a a victim, there has to be an aggressor or a bad guy, a perpetrator. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, in order for somebody to be a victim, there has to be somebody who has acted in a way that has victimized them. So that's the pattern that we're talking about. And what I've noticed is that many times couples get caught in an internal struggle within the relationship of the victimhood, of who's the victim. And so they end up in this race to be the bigger victim. So many times I've listened in my office as each person kind of lays out the reason they're the bigger victim. What they think they're telling me is all of the ways their spouse has done them wrong, all the ways their spouse has messed up the relationship. And it always includes something like an, oh, yeah, well, you. And that's the next layer down in the victim landscape, in the path of their victimhood. And sometimes for week after week after week, they'll come in and tell me more and more stories. In fact, it's as if they go home and they think up the times when they feel victimized by a spouse. And the interesting thing is, I'm often there with the spouse who is supposed to be the bad guy who thinks that they are the victim. What they're trying to do in many ways is to pull me in as the rescuer to tell them to choose which one is really the victim. I mean, that's what they really often had come to therapy for, to have somebody say, you're right and you're wrong. You've been injured and you injured. And then we get to shift the responsibility onto somebody. But the fact is, in most relationships, that's not the case. So let me now state that one more time, it is possible to be a victim of violence, for instance. It is possible to be the victim of abuse. And if that's the case, this is not what we're talking about. I always recommend that people who are in a a situation where they are truly being victimized, where they're truly being abused that they don't need to try to save their relationship. They need to get out of the relationship to save themselves, to protect themselves. So that's not what we're addressing in this episode. That's not at all what we're talking about. I just want to be very clear about that because I've always said, if you're in an abusive situation, please do not use my materials whatsoever to try to work on the relationship, but get yourself to safety. Okay, so now that leaves us talking about the psychological role of being a victim. What happens as I watch couples race to be the bigger victim is they're actually racing to disconnection and to alienation. Because as they build up the story in their mind about how they're the victim, how they've been done wrong, the other person is the one who did it wrong. The other person is the one that did it to them. Their spouse has become the enemy. And that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to be the victim, there has to be 
the bad guy that has to be the perpetrator. It has to be, you know, the enemy in that process. And so many times you end up in a pattern where two people are intimately connected and they're actually intimately enemies with each other because they both are seeing the other person as being the bad guy and them as being, you know, the victim of that. So now I have to remind us all that we all have this little story we play in our head. It's the hero story. (laughs) We see ourselves as being the heroes of our own story. Now, let me be clear that when I'm saying heroes, I'm not talking about superheroes here. I'm using the reference that was always true in uh, Greek myths where there was a main character who was there to make their way through the world and to deal with what the gods threw at them and what the you know in, different creatures and islanders and all these other people might come upon them. So this is the hero of the story, the main character of a story. Mythology has so, shown this myth of the hero so many times that it shows itself in book after book and movie after movie that it's become part of the process of creating a story. And Joseph Campbell told us about the hero's journey as this process of moving through and dealing with what's thrown our way. So we all have this little story that plays in our head about how we are the hero of the story. And here's why that happens. First of all, the only way I can tell a story about what happened in life is to kind of tell it from my perspective. But I kind of forget that I'm telling it from my perspective. I think I'm telling you what's true. When I'm working in my membership program where people submit their questions for coaching each week, one of the things I ask them to do is to give me their background information and to give it to me as subjectively as possible. I'm sorry, as objectively as possible, rather than our typical subjective way of seeing things. So subjective means that I tell it all from my perspective. And uh, when we tell it subjectively, we tend to put ourselves as the good guy in all the stories. A more objective telling is more telling me the details and more telling it from both people's perspective. Now, I'll tell you the trick to that is there's some research that shows that when people, when couples do just that, that each person writes down as objectively as possible what happened in their relationship, what happened in their interactions. Let's say they had a fight. So they step back and they tell it as objectively as they can that their marriage actually improves right off the bat. Part of the reason is because when you step into objectivity, you have to think about it from another perspective. But day-to-day, that's not what we do. Day-to-day, we are telling stories from our perspective. And and many times, we'll use a phrase, something like, well, from where I see it, or, well, it seems to me, or that's what it looks like to me, where we're actually showing that we're seeing it from our own perspective. We're telling it from our own perspective. And then we'll say, well, to me, it seems... And then we'll state what we think is the truth, not just our perspective of the truth, but the truth itself, and yet at the same time showing that it is actually from our own perspective. The thing about this is that we believe that we see things correctly. We see them the right way, that we choose to see things the right way. We believe deeply that we are seeing things for the way they are, for the right way. And that kind of makes sense because 
if we thought it might be another way, we would see it from that direction. We do things because we think it's the right thing to do. We choose the right action. We believe that about ourselves. And so a lot of times when people say, you know, why did somebody do something? My response is to say, because it made sense to them. In other words, they could make sense of that action as the correct thing to do. You do that. I do that. We all do that. We see things from our sensible place, my sense, not whether it is objectively sensible, but from my sensible perspective. And so what we often do is by believing we see things right, we begin to do one very important thing. We look for something that affirms our rightness, that affirms the way we see things. Cognitive science talks about the fact that we do this thing called confirmation bias. We look for things that prove us right. And we ignore things that prove us wrong. We see this every day in the media. When some politician, not so much whether it's the media doing it or not, but when some politician will point to all the evidence that supports their view while ignoring all of the evidence that confronts their view. We do it as humans, where we find something that we believe in and we go find the evidence to prove it. Now, notice what I just said. It's not, I'll see it when I believe it. It's when I believe it, I see it everywhere. So it fits into our understanding and our worldview, including how we see ourselves and how we see our spouse. And so we have a confirmation bias where we begin to look for the things that support what we already believe rather than looking at the things that kind of disprove what we believe. And we often even do that by bringing in our allies to do an ally bias. This is when you go to your friends and you tell them all about what your spouse did and you simply say, isn't my spouse a jerk? Now, you might use different words, but isn't my spouse wrong? Aren't I right? And most of the time, because A, the way we tell it, and B, it's our friends looking out for us, they will 100% agree that we've been done wrong, that the spouse is the wrong one. And because of that, it reaffirms our belief. We can hold on to our belief that we see things right and our spouse sees them wrong. And so we continue the confirmation bias by bringing in the witnesses to our own story to tell us that we are exactly right. So first of all, understand that we believe that we see things right. So we look for things to prove that we see them right. And then we bring in allies to help us prove that things are right because that makes us feel better and makes us continue looking at our own place of being the victim. Rarely do we go ask a friend to tell us that we've done something wrong. Rarely do we look for the proof that we've done something wrong. When we do, we tend to change. I mean, that's part of what helps us change. It's often part of what we get out of having a trusted confidant that will tell us flat out what they think. In fact, many times I've been hired by different people who are higher level people because Everybody around them gives them confirmation bias. I've had CEOs hire me just to be a sounding board that would tell them that they are off base, that they are wrong, and there's no consequence to me. But the people around them will confirm their bias, and so they know that they are talking in an echo chamber. 
the interesting thing is you and I walk around in an echo chamber every day by the story we tell ourselves about what's happened to us and how we are the victims of that. Now, our ego is part of that hero story, and the ego always wants to look right. And the ego never wants to be the bad guy. I've rarely met people who said that they wanted to be bad. There's a small segment of the population, we call them psychopaths or sociopaths, who want to do harm. They mean to be the bad guy. They set out to do harm. The rest of us justify our behavior, believing that we're doing right and wanting to look right. And that comes from our ego place. But we all have this deeper place. Call it the self, call it the soul, but there's something within you that knows that something's not quite right. It's the part that as you're telling your friends the story and they're agreeing with you that is kind of hauntingly behind there going, maybe you don't see the whole story. Maybe there's another piece to this. Just the other night, I was watching uh, TV, watching a reality show, and it's uh, the 90-day the fiancé. It's always interesting to watch because these people barely know each other, but they are trying their best to create a lifelong relationship. And as I was watching it, I was looking at the psychology behind it, and one of the interesting things to watch was how they were baiting each other in this conversation, trying to prove that they were right and the other person was wrong. And the interesting thing was they both were doing the exact same thing to the other person, exactly what they were accusing the other person of doing, they were doing. So they were talking about how they were being rude, and in reality, they were being rude. So this other person was being accused of being rude when the accuser was absolutely being rude and baiting the other person to take the bait, at which point they could say, see, that's what I mean. It was an interesting process to watch, not because it was unique to them, but because we all do that. And it's the same pattern I've seen in my office time and again as people try to prove that they are right, even though there is this little place that's wondering, maybe I'm not right. Maybe there's another perspective to this. So here's what you have to do in order to claim your victimhood. And this is how you can be the biggest victim. The first thing is to be committed to the fact that you're right. So victimhood requires your belief in I am right. In the process of being right, you can affirm that you're innocent of all wrongdoing. There's nothing that you did to contribute to the current situation. The second thing you can contribute to, to, you can say, is that you are good. And also add on to that that you're fair, absolutely fair in all your dealings, and that you're deserving of better treatment, that you deserve something you're not getting. In every victim story, there's something that you're supposed to have that you don't have. And the other person should be doing it. So embrace that. If this is where you want to be, the bigger victim, go ahead and stand on the fact that you're right, that you're the one who is innocent of this, that you're good, that you're fair, and that you deserve whatever it is that you're fighting about and whatever it is you feel like you're not getting from your spouse. That's the first step. 
The second thing, and there's only two you have to do, the second thing is to believe that you've been done wrong. So you're right, and you've been done wrong, and that you've been denied, you've been hurt, that you've been unfairly treated, and probably even misunderstood by the ways that you've been loving and supportive and caring and doing everything right. So you can say, I've been done wrong by both the things that your spouse did and what your spouse didn't do. Just affirm that you've been treated poorly by what they did, what they didn't do. And then you have to step back and be clear that that denial, that that hurt, that you are unfairly treated and that you've been grossly misunderstood. You play that long enough and you'll be the bigger victim. But it's going to be a race to the bottom. Just understand it is a race to the bottom, which is a race to disconnection and alienation. Because here's what victimhood creates. One, it creates the blame game. Lots of finger pointing. Now, blame has a very very closely related word. It rhymes with it is shame. When we're blaming someone, we're trying to bring out their feelings of shame. Shame is where somebody feels bad about themselves. So we activate that with blame. So play the blame game, and that's what victimhood creates. The second thing that victimhood creates is the responsibility shift. I'm making my spouse responsible for something that maybe I should be responsible for, but I shift it to them. My spouse should be making me happy. My spouse should be uh, meeting my needs. My spouse should be doing all of these things that I want in the relationship. So it it moves the responsibility from the person, the victim, to the other person, and the responsibility is shifted away. The third thing that victimhood creates is the me versus you mentality. What am I getting? What are you getting? Or more clearly, what am I getting versus what you're getting? I'm not getting my fair share is the hallmark of feeling like a victim. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not getting what I want. The fourth thing is that it creates a fair fail frame where we're asking about what's fair. The frame is what's fair in this. Interesting research shows that when people ask couples, researchers ask couples, how much do you contribute to your household? And they use that in terms of the relationship, energy, uh, of bringing in resources to that and taking care of the household. What percent do you take care of? When they add up a couple's score of what percentage each thinks they're contributing, it always exceeds 100%, which is not possible. Each person tends to overestimate how much they put in. And the problem with that is when they believe that it's unfair, that they're unfairly treated in that because unfair is kind of the hallmark of being the victim. It's not fair what I'm getting. And that is where we fall into that fair fail frame because then your spouse has failed, failed to keep up the bargain, failed to do what they should do, failed to give you what you think you deserve. Which brings us to one final piece to the victimhood and what it creates, and that is a scarcity mindset, that you're not getting what you deserve is based in scarcity. You're not getting 
your fair share is based in scarcity. That you're not getting, just the mentality of not getting is based in scarcity. A shift away from victimhood does something else, though. The first thing it does is it goes blame-free. Blame is rarely helpful. There are a lot of things you can do once you've identified that there is an issue to correct that issue without resorting to blame. Instead of saying, who did this, you can move to step number two, which is, how do I respond to this? So the second shift is about being responsible. I love that word, response-able. We're able to respond. Instead of shifting our responsibility to the other person, we see that we have some ability to respond differently, to maybe even decide that we're responsible for our happiness, that we can respond instead of reacting. And in the process, instead of getting into the blame game, you can have a conversation about how can we respond differently in the future? How can we respond in a way that changes things? Which leads us to a shift to we mentality. We're in this together. Our task is to get through life together with what we need and what we can put into this in order to move us forward. It's not about you versus me. It's about we being in this together, which leads to the fourth shift of acceptance, of saying, hey, this is where we are. This is the road we've traveled We are right here. Now, acceptance is only pointing to this present moment. We accept that this truly is where we are and ask the question, where do we want to go from here? How do we want to move forward now that we've accepted that this is where we are? And when we do that, we get into an abundance mindset. I've often watched couples that are acting as if they have only a limited amount of love to give to their spouse. So if they don't get enough back... They can't give anymore. As if love is a limited resource within each of us. What we know, philosophically and practically speaking, is the more you love, the more there is love. The more you connect, the more there's connection. It is as if it's a self-perpetuating machine. You might remember in your early days of your relationship, as you began to connect with each other, there was an abundance mentality there. I have more love to give. I have more love to share. I have more love, more ways of showing you love, more things to do, more ways of saying I love you, more attention, more time. You pour it in. And then as you get into a stuck point, you start saying, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting enough, so I'm going to pull back. I'm not going to share love because I need to hold on to that. When we hold on to love, it diminishes. When we share love, it grows. An abundance perspective allows us to share abundantly, not worrying about whether our spouse is putting in 50% or 49% or 61% or 35%, but giving love to be loving just for the sole sake of loving. Those five shifts can pull us away from victimhood and into an abundant relationship. Or you can use that same information to make your race to be the bigger victim. So you have a choice of whether you're going to play into the victim game or whether you're going to play a different game. 
you're not sure how to do that, because maybe you grew up not knowing how to do that, or maybe you just realize you don't have the tools of building the relationship you want, that's really the reason I created the Save the Marriage system. It's designed to help you not just stop some legal process or stop some deterioration, but to shift it to something better, to move it towards the relationship that you would cherish, that your spouse would cherish and treasure, that you both would protect, that would be full of warmth and connection, that would be abundantly loving. Now, if that's of interest to you, please check it out at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. When you do sign up, remember there are a couple of things that I add to it as long as I have room for it. One is, if there's still room, I give you a free week of my VIP program. It's a free week. You have to claim it. I don't just lump it in, throw it in, but you have to claim it because some people aren't interested in that. If you're interested in that, grab that free week when I suggest it, when I offer it. It's the only time I'll offer it to you. The other thing is we want to make sure you get started. So I give you a 15 to 20-minute session with one of my coaches to get you started the best way we know how. So that get started session, you claim it on your download page where you grab the whole system. You can just click the big button on, uh, I, I, want, I need coaching. Uh, just click that and give us some information and we'll take it from there. But the starting point for all of that is to go and grab the system at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. And if you want to help us to share this podcast with others, please go and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com. Thank you.